Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is Marilyn J. Woolley, Ph.D., author of How Heroes Heal, Stories of First Responders and the Journey from Post-Traumatic Stress Injury to Post-Traumatic Growth. Firefighters run into burning buildings, police officers chase active shooters, and EMTs rush to provide life-saving medical support, no matter how gruesome the crime scene. First responders are the action heroes of our time, but they are not invincible. Nearly 30% of first responders will develop PTSD, and many will experience increased suicidality. A new word that suicide elipti, which is a uh, definition in the American Psychological Association um, and other psychiatric conditions, explained psychologist and traumatologist Marilyn J. Woolley. And far too many responders struggle in silence, wondering if they will ever get better. She outlines what happens in the body and mind during a critical incident that makes it both normal and natural to experience difficult thoughts and feelings. With more than 40 years of experience in the field of psychology, Marilyn teaches critical incident stress management. She's worked with the American Red Cross to help victims of 9-11 and served as a clinician for the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. Welcome to the show, Marilyn. Nice to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Okay, we're talking about first responders, and first responders include, as, as I said in the beginning, well, police officers, EMTs, medical support, um, all of these people who deal with really gruesome crime scenes. You're saying, and you give stories and examples, obviously, in the book, How Heroes Heal, uh, the process by which they are able to heal and not become suicidal and uh, thrive rather than survive. Um, you've been doing this for 40 years. So the first question, uh, I guess, how did you, why did you decide to write this book after 40 years, all this experience? Uh, and why don't we start with that? Well, it's kind of been a long time in the making. Um, I was, you know, formulating how I wanted to write it. I started really about 17 years ago and started, uh, making a plan in my mind about what I wanted to say. And then, of course, collecting the stories, talking to the people, um, you know, enlisting the people that I interviewed and to tell their stories. And I'm very grateful that they did. They were very open with me and told me very um, personal details about their journeys. So it's taken a long time. And I guess I was inspired. I got into this work in the first place because probably because of what had happened to my grandfather in World War II. He was uh, one of the liberators of uh, Dachau prison camp. And what happened, it changed him from this kind of, he went to West Point and, you know, the yearbooks all talk about him being really funny and and, you know, a jokester. And when I knew him, it was, he was a very bitter, uh, isolated, unhappy man. And so something happened in that time. And I think that was when he went to Dachau, and he kind of lost faith in humanity, I think. And he, um, I want to stop you. And, because and so, did he talk to you? Yeah. Did he talk to you about that? Because I, you know, my father was in World War II. My father was in World War II. And uh, he never really wanted to talk about it. He was a captain in the Navy until 
maybe bits and pieces before he died, but I, I wonder a lot of those, and they were mostly men, I guess, who went to the prison camps, Dachau being one of them, could, weren't able to talk about it. Was your grandfather able to talk to you about his experience, no, about he, his feelings? He yeah. never talked. He never talked to me. The way I found out about it is after my dad died, I kind of found the trunk in the attic, and it had thousands of the pictures and letters he wrote just describing the horrors of it. And uh, you could tell after that, he, his, the way his letters were, that he changed. So I just went through all that stuff and started realizing what had happened to him. And then um, I went to um, a conference in, in Baltimore shortly after my dad died, and they found all this stuff. And I, there was a guy there. I went to the Holocaust Museum. And when I went to the Holocaust Museum, it's you go in, you take a passport of a person that was in the concentration camp, and then you go up this elevator, and the elevator opens on the fourth floor to this huge picture of the GIs looking in, and they all have the thousand miles there. And the elevator doors opened, and I saw that picture, and I thought, oh, my God, is this a light bulb? This is what happened to him, that he was just so horrified by what humanity could do to humanity. And I, it just all clicked. And then I talked to a man named uh, Mr. Aronson who wrote, produced a movie, the fighter pilot story. And I went up to him and I said, I don't understand what happened to my grandfather. Can you tell me? And he said, don't you understand? He was ashamed. And I said, what was he ashamed of? You know, he, he said, yes, he felt guilty. And I said, for what? I mean, he, you know, freed those people in the concentration camp. And he said he felt that way because he was afraid. And it just, the whole idea began crystallizing. And I started seeing my grandfather and the people that I was working with in terms of what happened to them to change their view of the world and, you know, and absorb this horror. And it's just like stole their soul, stole their, their, their confidence in humanity. And, you know, that's and wouldn't you say what, that also as a psychologist, when you look at what people can do to one another and the horrors that it, it's, it also, it, it's not just what the humanity can do to humanity, but, we're humans as well and that we have the capacity to do it. I think, I don't know if you mentioned the word shame, but if one feels shameful because that's part of who I am too, or it's scary, as you said, or fearful that maybe that you could are capable of doing those kinds of things. There's just so much there, I guess. And, and you've sort of touched on all of those things. In the beginning, I read 30% of first responders will develop PTSD and we uh, lay people use PSD now just as uh, a term that I was so I was terrified, I was scared. I so you know, I have PTSD from some kind of an experience, not the kind that you're just kinds you're describing in the book. So what's the difference? What really what what defines PTSD? What does the American Psychological Association define as PTSD if 30 percent of these responders are developing it? Well, there are a number of symptoms. And usually it's accompanied by um, feelings of great helplessness or horror. I mean, it's something that's overwhelming. 
to the person. And, and of course, with first responders, it has changed. And it used to be that we talked about it's just one incident, and now we know with first responders, it's day after day after day. It's cumulative. So they get PTSD, um, or I should say, you know, I'm, I'm going to say PTSI, post-traumatic stress injury, because it's something that happens to you from the outside. It's not something that is like that you develop on just on your own, like depression or schizophrenia or something. It's, it's an injury that happens to you from something and overwhelms your ability to cope. So there's all kinds of symptoms. Um, you know, there's symptoms that are similar to anxiety. It can lead to depression. Um, it can um, take away your personality in the sense that it makes you feel shame or, you know, just difficulty relating to other people makes you doubt yourself and, and, you know, all the other symptoms like trouble sleeping and so on and so forth. Um, it is just an all encompassing thing. Um, there's, you know, the saying that, you know, you have it because it's always with you. It doesn't ever go away. It's not like you feel good today and not so good the next day. It's like it's just there. So it's and chronic. So let's it, say if someone is a fearful that, or they think or feel that that they are suffering from PTSI, you said, PTS injury. Injury, uh, yes. Injury, yeah. So what are some of the symptoms? Uh, as you're t- discussing it, I'm thinking of like ER doctors. Very often there's a high turnover with ER doctors. It would seem to me that they would, could be suffering from that, that the, you can't stay in that too long because it's, it's just that constant barrage of horror and, and uh, chaos every day or every day that you're on the job. So what are the specific symptoms? Maybe take one of those heroes that you're talking about in the book and tell us how that works for one individual. So, um, okay, I'll talk about um, Leo in the book. He's the one that uh, confronted the fire tornado, in, actually in my town. And with what happened to him is this, it was a fire tornado, F3 tornado, but it was made of fire. And it was just, it just devoured everything in this path. And he was so horrified and so scared. He said, I felt like it was evil. It was going to take me and kill me and just, you know, that it was an evil force. So what happened to him is that he just felt disconnected from himself. He, he, he was, he had what we call emotional numbing where he couldn't feel anything towards his wife or his kids. And he was constantly having sleep problems. He couldn't sleep. And, of course, what that does is, you know, it takes sleep to heal us. And when you can't sleep, it really makes it bad. So he had that. And he had, um, he was angry all the time. He got very, he had a very short fuse. He would blow up at nothing. And it was he was really difficult to talk to him because he couldn't quite make sense of what he was feeling. It was so overwhelming. 
that he couldn't really talk about how he felt. And it was very confusing. He felt like he was going crazy because the fire was over and his body kept reacting like the fire was still happening. Is And that's what happens is your, you know, your cognitive part of your brain says you're fine. And the emotional part, the fight or flight part of your brain says, no, it's still happening. And so he would feel like he was in the fire still, even though it wasn't there. Uh, he was, you know, he was physically safe, but the feeling was that he was, he would have these feelings, these periods of panic where he felt like it was happening all over again. Does Very it usually have to be, so like, does it usually have to be, um, or one incident or is it more often a series of incidents? I mean, if you're a first responder, you're going to be confronted with all of these uh, horrible situations, uh, you know, every time you go out and go to work. So is it, or it could be just a one situation that just puts you over the edge or how does that work? Well, uh, usually what I see with first responders is it is cumulative. I mean, they deal with this day in and day out and it just adds up and they don't really deal with it because they have to get back to work. So they can't really process the whole trauma. They have to just move on and kind of stuff it. And then, you know, when it finally happens, it can be something that triggers them. And that's the day that they start developing the symptoms. Is there and a, for, is they, there a, I want to ask you this question. Is there a, um, a type of personality that is attracted to this kind of work, attracted to being a police officer, or a, uh, you know, an EMT, an ER doctor, whatever, uh, in the first place, because there's something exciting about it or it gets the adrenaline going. It would seem to me you have yes. to have a certain kind of personality to go into this line of work. You do. I mean, we call it the first responder personality. And, you know, they tend to be risk takers. They're, they're optimistic. They think they can control the world. They think they can handle any emergency. And when they find out they can't, it's a real crisis. When they find out they're overwhelmed, they feel very demoralized and, you know, can't understand why they weren't able to handle the situation. So there's so a sense of failures. Always... I mean, I would seem to me that would come into play too. I failed. I did. I, I look how I'm responding yes. to this. I can't do it. Yeah. What is the matter with me that I failed? You know, I should be able to do this. I should be able to handle this. And, and so they feel again, like they're going crazy because they can't handle it and they get these symptoms. What so, about, so you know, now what, what do you do when they have these symptoms and uh, they are either angry, you know, depressed, uh, you know, have get into addictions, all those kinds of things. You as the expert, what do you do? How do you help them overcome that so that they can go on, as you say, to lead uh, a normal life, which is possible again? Well, one of the first things I do is explain to them what's going on. You know, I'll, I'll say it pretty simply that the thinking part of your brain knows it, is nothing is happening, but the emotional part, the survival part, the fight or flight part is remembering what happens and is trying to tell you to do something about it. I mean, it's, it's your body's way of keeping you alive. But the problem is all those symptoms make you feel crazy. You're not crazy. But that's what's happening in your brain to make you feel that way. So even explaining it 
simply that you're not crazy. This is a normal reaction. You're a normal person having a normal reaction to abnormal events. That can help right there. And that's the beginning of it. Then, you know, what I talk about is kind of this journey through healing, and there's a number of steps to it. And it's, you know, getting involved with other people who have had the same thing, getting advice from them, having them explain that they've been through it, they're not alone, and doing a bunch of things, confronting a lot of the things that happened in the past. Many first responders have had trauma or um, a lot of anxiety during childhood. And so that's one reason I think that they're attracted to the job. Not, Not all of them, but a lot of them, they're attracted to the job because they don't want anybody else to hurt the way they hurt as children. So, what, let me, Marilyn, what is the prognosis, would you say, and I don't know if you have the answer for this one, but for these uh, police officers, for instance, who are responding to these active shooters and they sit, they are uh, exposed to children being blown apart, uh, little children, and they experience those kinds, and that's happening every day, I guess, uh, the horrific scenes like that. What's their prognosis? Well... You know, you can get through anything, but it takes a lot of work. And certainly I've had officers like that that have had, you know, things happening to children is the worst. I mean, nobody gets away from that. That's that's really, really hard. But they they can recover. I mean, they can, it's, they're never really the same again, but they can function better. And the, the one thing that I talk about in the book, too, and how heroes heal is post-traumatic growth. So they can go through these things and they can kind of get to the other side where they are are better. They're better connected with themselves, with their families, with nature, spirituality. They actually take this leap where they process this pain and this grief and come out the other side more in tune, I guess you would say, with the world than they were before. But it takes a lot of work. When you say it takes a lot of work, are you talking about it takes a lot of work in therapy, in counseling, and group support, as you mentioned, which I imagine is really, as you said, actually, is really helpful. What are we talking about in terms of, on the average of time, someone suffering from these post-traumatic injuries getting into therapy? Well, it varies. Yeah. Yeah. It varies. I think in my practice... I tell people it's usually going to take a couple of years at least. And you're always working on it because it never really goes away. Uh, you know, you can, you can reduce the emotional punch of the incident, but it's always going to be there. And so you have to keep working on it. You have to make a commitment to yourself that you will do things that are healthy. So that's, you know, not drinking, you know, exercise helps a lot. Um, meditation, spiritual practices, there's a lot of things you can do, but, you know, it, it, it does take work and commitment. And usually with first responders, because they are who they are, they want it now. And then they find out that they can't get it now. So, um, you know, that's kind of a battle that I have with my clients. It's like, you know, this is going to take more than you think. And they're yeah. like, no, <laughs> when, you know, they're impatient I mean, that's why they do what they do. Yeah, that's part of the personality. And as part of the personality, right. this is another <clears throat> question they have, some of them 
have partners who like to be with those kinds of people as well. So if you're treating the person, what happens to the family? Uh, two things. Do they stay or do partners stay together on the whole or no? And if they do stay together, are they engaged in the process of healing with the, the uh, first responder? Well, yes. I mean, if, if, you're, if you are with somebody and all of a sudden their personality changes and they're hostile and anxious and hyperreactive and they're emotionally numb, they don't pay attention to you, they're always zoned out, I mean, that's really difficult to live with. That's not the person you thought you married. They they can stay together. I mean, it takes, again, it takes work. And uh, a lot of times I like to work with the spouse, you know, kind of, you know, how, how how's your spouse doing these, these days? Uh, how are they interacting? How are they communicating? And with a committed spouse, they can keep marriages together. I mean, it's, it's uh, difficult sometimes, a lot of challenges. But a lot of times people when they confront these issues, they actually get to know each other better and have a, a deeper level, level of intimacy. Um, and not always. There are people that break up. There are a couple that break up, certainly. But it, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I mean, those are couples who are married, uh, some with children, some without children. What happens with the children? Are they engaged in the therapy as well? I mean, is that important to have them part of it? Usually, yes, or, you know, seeing uh, another therapist or something like that or talking to them, but it is, you know, they're involved too. And little kids even know what's going on. They know the score. They know that things aren't right. So it's important to let them in on the loop and, you know, have the parents talk to them. This is what, this is what I'm going through. This isn't your fault. It's nothing you did. It's something bad that happened to me. And this is how I'm reacting, but I'm working on it. I'm trying to improve. So I think the yeah, worst thing that can happen is, and many I know many families do this, uh, or try to do this, this suffering in silence, and expect that you know, everything is okay, or it's going to be okay, or things w- will get better, and whatever the things are, <laughs> things don't just get better. And so, what you're saying is, and I what your book is about is like it's these feelings are normal these terrible feelings that you're having these emotional feelings re- reaction but they can get better and you can get back to normal and i think that or whole even thing better. yeah or even better, better as you be- said yeah better than you were before yeah and that's the post traumatic growth part mm-hmm. so that's that's really important i i try to stress that um you know people need hope you need hope that things are going to be good again in your life. So that's important. Yeah. You know, that hope, the word hope is interesting when you say that, especially as a psychologist, because sometimes I'm uh, maybe as a social worker and I'm not in a clinical practice anymore, but uh, hoping and wishing and has to be, it can't be just hoping and wishing and, and that things will get, things will get better. You have to help them to get better. It's all, it, it's, it's all what your choices are and what you choose to do. I think I, so when I, when you mention hope, it's not a false sense of hope. There's real hope there if you work on it. Yes, but it's painful. This is a really hard process. 
and getting people to engage can be very difficult. I mean, people don't come into therapy because they're doing well. They come into therapy because their backs are against a wall yeah. and they can't function anymore. And they, they're in so much pain that they don't do anything, <laughs> including <laughs> therapy. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, Marilyn, you're a first responder or maybe you're the last responder. I don't know. But as you say, their backs are up against the wall and finally they come to you. So, I mean, you've got the real You've got the real challenge, or they have a real challenge too, but I mean, that's really challenging um, to be able to help. And I imagine the sooner one does get help, the better, obviously. Not to wait months, years uh, until you really reach rock bottom. Yeah, they do. Do most of them. I mean, they think they're in control. They think they, I mean, that's, you know, first responders tend to be control freaks. What do they do? They control, right? situations and they feel like they should be able to control this what their symptoms are and they can't so but that's the nature of the the personality of the first responder well you've done a great job you've been as i said in the beginning you've been doing it for more than 40 years so you're the person to come to with all the experience given that and we only have a couple minutes left uh i want to mention the book again, How Heroes Heal, Stories of First Responders and the Journey from Post-Traumatic Stress Injury to Post-Traumatic Growth. And we've been talking, I've been talking to the author, Marilyn J. Woolley, uh, PhD. Uh, So Marilyn, give us a website and or websites to go to for more information about the book and about the work that you're doing. Um, The website is Marilyn J. Woolley, PhD. And um, that has information about the book and also my practice, which um, is pretty much closed now, except to first responders and, you know, more about me. Um, so, yeah, that has a lot of information on it. So just by going to that website, we can get all the information we need about the book and about you. And it is all about you. Yeah. <laughs> and. It's great having yeah, um, great having you on the show today. Uh, a lot of good information, and um, thank you very much. Well, as I said, I'm honored. Yeah, good luck so, with the book. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 